Hey! You're listening to Talk of Shame, a Wamina production supported by our sponsor, BetterHelp. I'm your host, Alia Moro. I'm an Egyptian-born, London-raised freelance journalist and author of the best-selling non-fiction book, The Greater Freedom. Having felt the impacts of shame, or Arab, as Arabs like to call it, on many aspects of my life, I've become pretty obsessed with the concept and the question of how we can rid ourselves from it. Throughout the season, I dig deeper into shame with the help of some brilliant guests. Shame breeds shame, so we gotta talk about it. Why do we care so much about what other people think? I think it's because of such a young age, we as Middle Eastern people, and especially women. They like to put us in a mold. I believe the central factor of bringing up a child in our community is al-suma, the reputation. We're taught that other people's emotions and feelings and thoughts and judgments carry more weight than our own. What society wants from us is the most important thing. We always have to conform to rules and regulations. There's this whole haram police and shame border around doing something out of the norm. We are told that anyone who strays from this path is like heretic and, you know, should be ashamed of themselves and is ashamed of society. I think that comes from wanting to feel a sense of belonging. I think it stems from the importance of community and being accepted by your communities. And if we break that mold, they shame us and we fear to be ostracized by our societies. The opinions of our elders, the opinions of our society towards us hold a lot of weight. Human societies were based on tribal systems. So before, if someone did something that is unacceptable to the tribe, they would be kicked out and left to die. Back in the day, everyone knew everyone's business and they had nothing better to do than gossip about so-and-so's kids and their upbringing. So they fix a mold on us and try to shame us into be according to it. We're brought up to behave in a way that betrays who we are as people. So we grow up feeling like if we do anything for our own benefit or something that we want, we feel like we're breaking our identity. You want these people to like you. You want to feel liked and accepted and seen and heard and valued and worthy. The few who break out of it, it's very difficult and they kind of have like a whole identity crisis. It's just unfortunate that there are so many rules and structures and regulations that stop us from being ourselves and being accepted. As we get older, we realize that, you know, no one really cares. There's really no one waiting at the door like, hello, how dare you do this? As we grow up and our friendship groups expand, our perception changes and, and we start to realize that there is really a lot less pressure than we initially thought there was. Like many of us, I grew up hearing what will people think in response to pretty much everything. In my book, The Greater Freedom, I coined the term the invisible jury, which basically refers to all the very many people that we're supposed to think about when we're asked that question. Our communities aren't always wrong when they say it, to be honest. People do love to gossip. But can we really live our lives based on what other people will think? What people say about you is not your business, so... People don't think about, I, I always say that, people are not thinking about you. And if they are thinking about you, and they're obsessively thinking about you, it's 
because they're thinking about themselves through you. It still has nothing to do with you. They don't know you. That's Noor Tuguri, the award-winning Libyan-American storyteller and producer who has over two million social media followers. I've been following Noor for ages, and I've always found her really inspiring. Even more so when I got the opportunity to interview her a few months ago for the digital cover of GQ Middle East. When we spoke, she brought up the concept of horizontal hostility, which I just found so fascinating and fits in so well with this week's theme. So I just had to have another chat with her. In this episode, Noor breaks down the concept of horizontal hostility and how it's impacted her life. Before that, she kicks off by telling us what she thinks about when she hears the word shame. Shame breeds shame. Let's talk about it. I'm actually in the process of kind of unlearning what my definition of shame is because when I would hear the word shame, I would immediately think Aib. And Aib is the Arabic word for inappropriate, or I would hear tashmi. That's what I would hear, which is have shame. Okay. And that was said, you know, if you were dressed a type of way or if you were talking a type of way or if you, whatever it was, anything that like made you a little too out there, which I am like 10 out of 10 out there. So (laughs) I really hated hearing that. And I think I had internalized Tashmi because like now as an adult, like when I say things or do things or whatever, if I can hear that in the back of my head, I'm just like, ew, go away. Like, what does that mean? Why are you saying that? Because shame, as I've learned from Brene Brown, is you are bad, not your actions are bad. And I think that we need to really work on eradicating how we want people to be filled with shame because so many people already struggle with loving themselves to begin with that it's so counterproductive to anything we want to happen in our society. And I think that, you know, really has a big impact on people's sexuality and how they even present themselves and how they see themselves and the worth that they have within themselves. It's a big, I think, problem, especially within our culture. And and let me clarify, it, it is a cultural thing. It's not a religious thing. There's no, we're in the religion where it says you should have shame around this thing or feel whatever, like, that wasn't a thing. One of the things that, God, I hate this sentence so much, but I've just heard it so much growing up is what will people say? Oh, yes. And. It's just like never ending. And who those people are is like the doorman or like the neighbor. Or just anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very grateful and lucky that that's not something that my parents ever said to me, but it was something that I always heard around me. But my parents were very much like, I don't really care about what people say. I just care about you for me because I'm responsible for you. And also... They were very familiar with knowing that everybody had their own shit. Like everybody had their own problems and stuff. And this idea that what will people say, let me change myself for the comfort of other flawed human beings is very, very, very problematic because who are you trying to please? And if you continue to try to please other people, you'll never, aside from the fact that it's just wrong, you'll never be happy with yourself because you're always going to be competing with something that is in itself a facade. Because the way that people present themselves is also, especially within 
our culture, if people are, you know, adhering to wanting to present themselves as a type of way, it's, it's not authentic. Yeah. And so much of it then I think becomes about, again, what other people think of you rather than what you think of yourself. Like I was quite a troublemaker when my teenage years, like very much a troublemaker. Same. <laughs> and it's quite, I think it's like a rite of passage. Like you almost have to do it. But so much of what I was concerned with at the time was not necessarily about whether or not what I was doing was right or wrong. It was more the sort of not getting caught because I didn't want people to have something to say about me. Or you just didn't want to get caught because you didn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. Like no one wants to get in trouble and no one wants to be talked about and stuff. But here's the thing. And I challenge parents today about this. And I don't know. I think that our generation of parents, like the new parents and stuff, are completely changing their approach about this. But maybe if the parents didn't talk about what would people say or you can't do this and you can't do that. And there was no explanation, just no, for nothing, for no reason, just for the right of saying no. Maybe if you didn't do all of that, then there wouldn't be anything to get caught over because there would just be open and honest communication. Like you said, it's a rite of passage. And yes, maybe it is a rite of passage for kids who grow up in very you know, strict households and things like that. But if there's just open and honest communication all throughout, then there wouldn't have to be that. But why, why do you think that our communities care so much about what other people are going to say or think? Because we naturally compare ourselves. Like we naturally compare what we have and what we're doing. I mean, a very clear, easy example is when parents compare their kids, especially their sons. I see this a lot with boys. And well, so-and-so son got into this school and is doing medicine and is doing this and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it almost maybe starts as this, huh, maybe it's this, this is a theory one theory, potentially. Maybe it's that we grew up and even our parents grew up with the same comparison problem that they themselves internalized it. And when they grow up, they repeat the actions that their parents did to them because their parents wanted them to be better. And that was the way that they knew how. Yeah. And also because we don't have conversations around I don't think we have conversations around mental health enough to know that you should just be taking care of yourself and your own mind and your own spirit and your own whatever. And if we lived in a really healthy society where everybody did that, we would feel comfortable enough when one family was struggling with something that they'd be able to speak up about it and be like, hey, I'm really struggling with this one thing and there wouldn't be this shame around it or this embarrassment around it and people would be able to help them and then we would be a self-sufficient society. But... We want to pretend like we don't need anybody. I also think it comes from materialism. Mm. I think a lot of out of families in general tend to be pretty materialistic. Again, the separation of like culture and religion. And it's like you have the nicer house and the nicer things. And then at least that's kind of like when I grew up, I grew up in a very conservative white town. And then when I was 14, we moved to a community that was a lot more diverse. And that was the first time I had Muslim friends. And that's what I saw. I saw a lot of like gossiping and materialism. And I remember asking myself, is this what like Muslim friends are like? Like I didn't know. It was a whole growth situation. But it comes down to insecurity, your own insecurity. Because if you are one to compare to other people, you're never satisfied with yourself. You're never like, oh, I got to this point because there's always another person to compare to. 
I remember I had a friend at school and she had loads of female cousins and she told me that what their moms would do like on, you know, when they were having dinner together or whatever is they would line up all the cousins and they'd be like, you're taller, you're thinner, you're prettier. Like That's and traumatizing. She Well, she had an eating disorder, a poor girl, and she was literally saying to me like, I can kind of, obviously there are loads of reasons, but she was like, I can kind of trace a little bit back to that where I was lined up with like my 10 female cousins and compared with them for like every single thing about me you're smarter you got into this school like it's wild well that's so messed up that's awful I'm so sorry to hear that and just wrong like there's no benefit to that at all you're just destroying people and it's you know it's unhealed trauma from their own like, I'm sure that their parents went through the same thing they're doing. That's a very specific thing to do. Yeah. You don't just come up with that. It's like what you said as well, that we don't have enough understanding about mental health. So we don't understand the negative impact that that has. Like, it's almost like, oh, I think that if I compare you, you will then try and be better or improve yourself in that way that I think that you should be, as opposed right. to the the reality of it, which is that you'll probably then feel quite shit about yourself. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, it's wild. I guess this ties in quite nicely to the idea of like gossip as control, which I think Mm. we so often do, not just in Middle Eastern culture, I think in a lot of cultures, but I guess especially in Middle Eastern culture, there is this idea of like, did you see what this person did? Or, you know, you kind of hear even growing up the sort of things that your family or that your extended community will say about other people. Mm -hmm. And in hearing about what they think of this person who's done this thing, you are inherently like, okay, shit, well, I'd better not do that then because that's obviously wrong. Totally. Is that something that you sort of heard growing up? What are your sort of feelings about this and how have they changed? Gossip is something that's really triggering for me um, because Maybe for several reasons. I just remember when I was saying like I had met, you know, my first group of Muslim friends and that is what people did when they would hang out. They would sit on their Blackberries and I didn't have a Blackberry at the time. So I felt really uncool and they would gossip and they would show people like all the stuff. And I, I was just, I just thought it was very boring at first. I was, you know, there's that, I think it's Eleanor Roosevelt quote where small minds talk about people, average minds talk about events and big minds talk about ideas. And I, now the friends that I surround myself with are people who talk about ideas. I remember learning, is it a hadith? It might be a hadith or a saying, I don't remember, but of, you know, gossiping is like eating the flesh of of someone else, I think, or a friend or something. And I remember that visual. I, I, there was this like viral video on YouTube and I saw it visualized that way. And I just thought it was, really gross and maybe that was a little traumatizing but my family in general gossip isn't like a thing that we do really and that was because my mom would always call it out and say you know you won't no one will die without having doing the same thing that you're talking about other people doing Mm. and like outing their problems and stuff and that also always stuck with me and I just saw gossip destroy people's lives and ostracize them and and kick them out of really like push them out of the community. That's what it did to me. I mean, I guess it comes back to like my own experience too. I remember, you know, in 2016, when I chose to do an interview in Playboy magazine for my journalism work, 
and the entire world at the time for weeks was gossiping about me and assuming things and putting, and I was just seeing stories. I remember like going onto Facebook and people who I was friends with who thought maybe I, I didn't see were writing like essays about me. And I just saw it happen in front of me and I saw what it was like on such a different level that I never, ever, ever wanted to be around people who engage in that because I knew what that felt like. Yeah. And even, I don't, and I, I say this about like, the most famous celebrity, the most famous person, like I don't, I don't engage with and gossip about them because at the end of the day, they're still human beings who are going through things. And it's such a waste of time. It's so boring. It's just so boring. It is, it is. And I feel like a lot of it is this sort of moral superiority where it's like, oh, well, I would never do that, you know? It's a kind of way of like separating yourself from it and sort of yeah. making yourself think or feel better. Yeah, because you don't know that. You literally, I'm a different person this year than I am from last year. I don't know what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. Yeah. So why would I ever play with that? And also I have too many things in my own life to be worrying about. At the very minimum, it's like I don't, I'm not thinking about you. Don't <laughs> And I think that's quite freeing when you realize that everyone always says like, oh, well, people aren't thinking about you the way that you think that they are. Yeah. But then if people are gossiping, then are, aren't they? Like maybe, maybe some people do. But it doesn't matter because it's still not your business. Yeah. It doesn't matter. What people say about you is not your business. So people don't think about, I, I always say that people are not thinking about you. And if they are thinking about you, and they're obsessively thinking about you, it's because they're thinking about themselves through you. It still has nothing to do with you. They don't know you. Yeah, it's so true. Let's pause the conversation here for some words from our sponsor, BetterHelp. We carry the burden of shame with us for longer than we realize, and it weighs on us more than we think. For so many of us, mental health services are inaccessible, but BetterHelp offers professional counseling worldwide through video and phone sessions at prices that are more affordable than traditional online counseling. They also offer financial aids. Because we often need support between therapy sessions, BetterHelp offers a messaging service where you can text your counselor and get timely responses with security and privacy. BetterHelp's licensed therapists are ready to offer their broad range of expertise wherever you are. As a Talk of Shame listener, you get 10% off your first month with BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P. Use promo code Talk of Shame and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Back to the conversation. God, I can't imagine what that must have, like, because obviously people love to gossip, right, as we know, but... To go on Facebook and see like your friends, like people that you're actually friends with on Facebook doing that. I mean, yeah, friends with quote unquote. Yeah, it's a very surreal meta experience. And I grew a new layer of skin for it. So I'm grateful for that. But to be honest with you, it changed the way I see most people. I see people as clout chasers, oftentimes people who are trying to you know, be a part of the conversation. I know her a little bit, so I have something to say. Mm. And it's just like, nah, you don't actually, you never really did. Everybody who's very close to me knows that the only people who really, really know me are my family and the people closest to me. Before that whole Playboy debacle went down, did you 
care what people thought of you before? Was there a shift there or did you grow up not really caring? No. I mean, I did at some point, I did it for a certain period, but I only really cared about what my family and my close friends and I mentors thought because I was always doing something different. People always had a different reason to gossip about me. Mm. But that was, again, like very small minds. And I've always, I always knew what I wanted. And so all of the noise didn't matter. And I remember even my grandmother after that happened, she posted on my Facebook, let the dogs bark in Arabi. I love that. Yeah. And I was like, ah, cool. If the people that you love love you and support you, why does anything else matter? Mm. I remember one time my mom took my phone away when we were on a trip that I was posting about because I posted a picture praying in the first mosque that was ever built in Canada. And I think it was built by women. And I had these little socks on and the socks looked like shoes to some people. And so the picture like blew up and people were fighting and arguing that I was wearing shoes in a masjid. The stupidest thing. And she took my phone away. She was like, you don't have to see this. Mm. And I was like, okay, cool. I don't have to see it. So then why do I have to engage in that? Well, because it just goes to show the amount of misunderstandings that can happen and the sort of judgment that's based on like incorrect things that are not but even... But people are looking to do that. People already who already have that inside of them, when they see you on the internet, their lens that they have is what can I pick out mm. instead of just minding your own business and just going through. One of the main reasons why I wanted to speak to you today is because when I spoke to you for the GQ digital cover, you brought up the concept of horizontal hostility, which I mm -hmm. just found so fascinating and I had never heard about before until you mentioned it. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what horizontal hostility is? Yes, totally. So horizontal hostility is a term that was coined by a professor from the University of Delaware, I'm blanking on her name, and it basically means that there is a sense of hostility between people who share similar values and goals. So horizontal meaning across, so the people who are next to you or near you in your own community. And the reason that I'm so obsessed with this is because it's something that I've experienced a lot with Muslim women but it's also people experience it in every community. In the study, and this is, I think, a very good example, is that vegans had more of a sense of hostility towards vegetarians than non-vegetarians because their idea is, well, if you're vegetarian, then just go the whole way. And so we often do that to each other, like, oh, you wear hijab? Okay, so then wear it the way I wear it. Mm. And we impose our standards on other people instead of just allowing everyone to be an individual and minding your own damn business. <laughs> I find that so fascinating because it's definitely something that I think we all experience. Like I know when I was writing my book, that was my main concern was not, you know, and so much of what we do as Arab women who live in the West or whatever is sort of, we're so much, we're so much thought to worry about what the West thinks of us. But yeah. I've found that I've worried a lot more about what people from within my community think, because whether or not I had a term for it, I was subconsciously aware of this horizontal hostility. Yeah. Literally, I think I cried when I read the word because I didn't know that there was a word for it. I read that chapter over and over and over and over again. It was from the book, The Originals by Adam Grant. And I just mm. felt like 
a weight lifted because I didn't know that this was something people studied. As a visibly Muslim woman, I guess there's so much more of that probably than maybe I deal with. Is that something that you felt constantly or is it with big things like the Playboy interview or with stuff like that? Oh, no, that was I kind of like started having a platform when I was 17, 18 years old. And I had just started wearing hijab a couple of years before that. So most of my hijab wearing life, I've had this community, I guess, that we've built. And when I first started out on social media, so many of my comments were, you're not wearing your hijab right. Imagine, I mean, people don't really talk about that now. Some people once in a while, once in a blue moon, but I've been able to stand up for myself enough and not care enough about what people say that I didn't change myself at all. And instead, people just learned that there was an unfollow button yeah. and they could go somewhere else. And I was able to build a community that I have now, which I'm so grateful for. But I think because there were so few, especially at the time when I was coming up, mm. it was just natural to compare everyone. And it wasn't even within our own community. I mean, even until now, when people are getting opportunities and whether it's campaigns or consulting or speaking or whatever it is, there's almost always typically one Muslim woman, if there is even one. And so it's very hard to understand horizontal hostility without understanding that it comes from a place of scarcity and not enough opportunity. Mm. It's like the system, quote unquote, has kind of forced us to compete with each other in a way that's so nasty because they don't want to make more space. And scarcity mindset tells us that that's the only option and that you can't create your own space. I feel like a lot of horizontal hostility, though, as well, is just like shame is leveled so much more at women than it is at men. Oh, of course. I mean, I think that's universal, too. Hmm. Because if you live in a patriarchal society where men are already here, then if we're taking it back to scarcity, it's like, well, there's not enough positions here. There's not enough whatever. But there's never not enough men. So much of shame as it stands, I think, is about sort of making women especially fit into the kind of ideals that society has dictated for them. Whereas men don't really have, well, other than like, don't be too soft or whatever, you know, toxic masculinity tells them. There's just not as many things that they need to abide by. Mm -hmm. I think horizontal hostility is very much like, well, this is what we've told we should be. And maybe part jealousy, part like, oh my God, I've been subscribing to these ideals, but you're not. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like a yeah. way to ensure that we're all under the same rules and under the same sort of control, I think. Yeah. And it's up to us to have conversations like this to be like, oh, there's another option. You don't mm -hmm. have to do this. Exactly. And I guess that goes back to representation to finish like how do you think that we stop giving weight to the invisible jury how did you do that what are your lessons here well the realization that I had which is actually recent I think I had a little bit of this until recently when my mentor Seth Godin put it to words which was reassurance is futile so this invisible jury that you're you're referring to their opinion even when they give you their opinion even when they give you their praise it's only going to last two seconds, mm. if that. Maybe a little bit more for some people. I remember the example he gave me was, if Oprah called you today 
and told you you were an amazing journalist, an amazing interviewer and all of this, the high that you would have from that wouldn't last you more than two days. So why are you looking for reassurance from everybody else when you know it's not going to last? The only person you can seek reassurance from is yourself, especially if you are doing something that is on the forefront and is changing the way that we do things or is different than what society has typically had, then no one is going to have the answer for you except for you. Your priority should be building trust with yourself and trusting your insides and trusting that you have the answers. I love that. That's really the answer. I love that. It's like not giving weight to the bad stuff or the good stuff and sort of looking inside for all of that. Yep. And that's really what I've kind of focused on. It's really lovely to get nice messages, but I don't think about them after I read them. They don't add weight. They don't make me feel any better. They don't make me feel any worse. And, and when you think about it that way, then the bad ones should feel the same. I mean, the bad ones are always harder to shake off because it's somebody like hitting something different. Mm. But when you build the habit of not putting weight on either and just focusing on, well, are they telling you something that you didn't know about yourself? No. So you just got to move on. I love that. Fariha Royson wrote in a piece for Nylon magazine, and she said, it's not what will people say that God will challenge in the end, but why you ultimately never listen to yourself. I love that. I 100% believe that. Yeah, I think it speaks so well to what you're talking about, which is like figuring out, again, our own moral compasses and our own sort of perceptions of of how we should be in the world. And, mm-hmm. and that sort of gives less weight to what the invisible jury are going to think of us. Totally. Yeah. I love this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Noor. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you again. Always, always at your service. Thank you, Adia. Bye. I think that's such great advice from Noor, not to give too much weight to the good or the bad. It's definitely something I'm working on. I particularly loved how she spoke about the fact that we can't please everyone anyway. And why would we even want to bend over backwards to live up to expectations from people who are themselves ultimately flawed? Hmm. Next week, I chat with Minna and Hager, the sisters behind The Meme Shop, one of my favorite accounts on Instagram and the Yolabai podcast. They're fellow third culture kids, and we talk about the shame that comes with being both and neither. Here's a snippet from next week's conversation. I wish I can do that too, where I don't feel like I need to pick an identity. I can just be whoever the hell I want to be on whatever day I want to be it and just not have it be something that's so, something that I think about every single moment of my life. I'm Alia Moro, and you've been listening to Talk of Shame, a Wemina production supported by our sponsor, BetterHelp. Sound designed by the talented Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Wemina producers Amira Ahmed, Elisa Friha, and Rhythma Ekinayaki. Thanks to everyone who submitted voice notes for this week's episode. Follow me at Alia Moro and at Wemina to submit your thoughts for future episodes. We'll be dropping questions every Saturday. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, download and review. It really does help get the word out there. Talk to you next week.